Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we look at the latest tactical and strategic updates from the ground, explore the Russian and Ukrainian positions in the negotiations that have started in Turkey, and we look at the role of espionage in the conflict. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's day 34, and today I'm joined by Dominic Nichols, the Telegraph's defence and security editor, and Francis Dernley, our assistant comment editor. To start, I asked Dom to update us with the latest news from the ground. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. Again, a fairly static day across the across the theatre of uh, of Ukraine. Um, there has been uh, news that uh, Irpin, the uh, region of Kiev capital, just to the, the north uh, northwest of the city centre, has been retaken. Uh, an American uh, journalist who's based in Ukraine, Nolan Peterson, said that um, Alpha One, which is what Ukraine is calling its foreign legion team of, um, of people from all around the world, including American volunteers, took part in that. Uh, that action there. Elsewhere, there's been an attack on government building in Mykolaiv down in the south, uh, which has killed a small number of people um, and uh, others are still unaccounted for. And other than that, the, the focus seems to be still with Mariupol, which is which is clinging on desperately. Uh, and, and in the east, there's been reports that the uh, Wagner group and mercenaries are moving into, into the Donbass. So there's, also, um, there's also footage showing Russia and it, and it it's thought to be this group um, using uh, a Toyota, basically Toyota Hilux uh, trucks, the old technicals, as, we, as we'd call them, with heavy machine guns on the back, um, which is, is, very, is very interesting. Uh, if a month into this war, Russia has lost so much equipment that they're having to rely on civilian, modified civilian vehicles. I mean, that's just uh, that's quite extraordinary. But yeah, in, in terms of tactical uh, tactical action, that that's the um, that's the update. There's been uh, quite a quite a lot on the diplomatic front, but we'll come on to that uh, in just a minute. Definitely. There's just been some news just come in. I th- we've just retopped our live blog with it that uh, I'll just read it for you now. Russia's main aim in Ukraine is now the quote liberation end quote of the eastern Donbass region. The Kremlin has said confirming an apparent scaling back of invasion plans. Sergei Shogu, Russia's defence minister, claimed the main targets of the first stage of the operation had been reached. Um, how do we react to that? Is this proof that really they, they haven't got what they wanted and they're now trying to find a, w- a way to say they've won? Yeah, I, th- I think it's I think it's along that road. I mean, Sergei um, Shoigu, who hasn't been seen for a couple of weeks, there was speculation. Well, I think a load of speculation. There's no point in repeating it here. But he's now he's now back on the stage. Um, he said that that uh, Ukrainian military had been quote seriously degraded, which, if you remember, was one of the one of the other things that they said they needed to um, wear or not wear down, but um, to to reduce the military capacity of Ukraine. So we're seeing this slow erosion back from what uh, Putin and the, the leadership, Russian leadership, very boldly claimed as the, the, the purpose of the war in the first in the first instance. I mean, we'll talk talk in a minute about the uh, the, the peace talks and negotiations in in Turkey. But one of the things that has happened there is that Russia has dropped the um, the call for denazification. Um, so they've dropped the denazification. They've said the Ukrainian military has been seriously worn down. Um, Zelensky has said that he's willing to talk, albeit with caveats about referendum and, and so on, about um, uh, NATO membership, 
and security guarantees. And then we've got this focus on the Donbass. So, yeah, I think we're I think Russia is Russia realizes it's it's got to get out of this um, and it's got to find some kind of way of, of downgrading what it originally originally said it would go in for some way of turning it into a you know proclaiming a victory i think you're seeing some fairly sensible pragmatic noises from from ukraine to uh, allow them this this victory if they want to call it a victory fine um so we are we are moving that way um of course nothing about the drug dealers sounds like russia's perfectly happy to leave leave this sort of roaming band of drug dealers in charge of ukraine but then maybe they'll pick that one up uh, tomorrow Francis, do you want to come in on this? Thanks so much, Dom. Yes, well, whilst they haven't made reference to uh, the denazification, they've still talked about liberating the Donbass, which one can obviously read in, in, in slightly different ways. I mean, it is fascinating, isn't it, that this was started clearly as a whole-scale invasion of Ukraine. Um, as we've talked about many times, Putin laid out in his, in his essay back in July that it was very clear that he sought to reabsorb Ukraine as part of some greater Russian Empire or for, former Soviet Union, if, however you want to articulate that. Um, and he has not succeeded. So this is major um, e- estimation management on the part of the uh, the Russian regime now, attempting to claim that all along it only sought to retake the Donbass. Now, I know we're going to come on to negotiations later on, but it's really important, I think, to understand that um, th- this may not be as simple as uh, us thinking, well, of course, Ukraine are not going to uh, to, to, to concede any uh, ground to the Russians and are now going to go for total victory. Um, because actually, there is an argument that it will be beneficial to Ukraine's stability in the long run to uh, give Russia some of this territory that has already been occupied by um, its troops and also that already has a largely sympathetic Russian population, um, that this may actually be seen as a benefit to the stabilisation of, of President Zelensky's country. Now, I'm not saying I agree with that because I think there's huge dangers of giving any ground to a monster like Putin who uh, you know, conducts an illegal war such as this and, and, and is perceived as getting away with it with some beneficial gain. I think that's incredibly dangerous, which is why the West is telling um, Zelensky, so we hear, not to give in on any ground on, in, in, uh, in, in negotiations. But that may not be the way that President Zelensky sees it. And I think that will be, uh, when we talk about negotiations, that will be one of the interesting things to discuss. But certainly, just to Dom's point, militarily, this is obviously a huge... Um, uh, uh, c- conceding of, uh, of of the initial objectives of the Russian operation, and I think we should be very clear about that, that and, and not buy the Russian propaganda line that this was somehow their intention all along, because it clearly, clearly wasn't. And I just conclude by by saying the, the the point that I made yesterday at the end of yesterday's podcast, which is imagine how you would feel if you were fighting around Kiev or in some of these other regions that were being um, so fiercely attacked by Russian soldiers in in recent weeks. And you're now told that that operation was essentially never really um, of of immense strategic value um, in in the grand scheme of things. I mean, it would be... uh, to say it would be damaging to morale would be an understatement. Imagine as well in Russia if you'd lost your son, a conscript, in, in a battle around Kiev, which now is, is no longer a military target. So this is a, a significant moment, I think. Thanks, Francis. Yesterday, we spent a lot of time talking about Joe Biden and his diplomacy. Um, we saw an update on that story today where he said he, he made no apologies for calling for Vladimir Putin's removal, but claimed he was expressing his personal feelings, not a U- new US policy, as he defended his off-the-cuff remark. Um, this is the remark where he said, you know, this guy can't stay in power. Um, I just wanted to hear both of your reactions uh, to that. Um, and then I've got a question from a listener as well. Uh, I, I think, obviously, the... Uh, it's it's um, asking a, a lot of, uh, of of the people of the free world to say, oh, don't take what I said seriously um, as president of the United States, that I was speaking in a personal capacity and not talking about uh, US foreign policy. I, um, I think it's... Um, 
asking rather a lot there, really. And it's clearly a climb down further from uh, what what was uh, where we were yesterday when we had to have a, a rather embarrassing White House denial immediately after the remarks were made. Um, so I, th- I think uh, we, we whatever he, whilst obviously he is articulating what many, many people feel here, as we talked about at length yesterday, I think there are there are a lot of um, uh, risks attached to that. And um, I don't think we can see this as any anything more than than ra- a rather um, a red faced president. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think he should just be quiet about this whole thing now. He's not going to be able to, to draw back the uh, I'm still sticking with the line. that I think it was a gift to Putin. I, he's not going to be able to, to pull that back. And what he's doing now is just just muddying the waters so that we, the, the public who in in other nations listen to him and as francis says are we now to to think hang on is he speaking as the president or is he speaking as as joe and it's just really unhelpful uh, clarity of language is is very important when you're in a leadership position such as he is i think he made a mistake the other day okay fine we'll we'll do that i think he should just he should just stop now and, and not not keep drawing attention to it because it's just just making it worse Thanks both. Um, so just quickly, this I thought was a very interesting question from, from a listener, from Justin. Um, and just to say, if you do have questions from us, please do email, please do DM us. You know, we want to hear them. So the question is this, just on this topic. Uh, quote, the conversation in the podcast group seems to be very worried about Russian propaganda using these remarks for their gain. This is President Biden's remarks. But so what? Do we really think the Russian public is on the fence about Putin? It's a cruder form of power to say something like this, but it may have the effect of actually getting through to Putin that he is the problem. Just just quickly, what, what are your reactions to that? Well, uh, firstly, thanks, Justin, for getting in touch. It's an, it's an absolutely val- valid point. Um, no, I don't think the Russian public are on the fence. And I, I would have thought even, well, far fewer, a great small number would, um, I've really mangled that sentence, I'm sorry, but I wouldn't have thought many people um, would, would get a, a great deal of information um, from the state about this anyway. So I, I don't think it would sway a huge, a huge number of people in Russia. However, just taking a, a step back from that, there are still a huge number of floating voters here uh, internationally, who 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 could really impact the situation, and I, I've I've posited before that I can see a role for the CSCO, the sort of what Russia would like to style as as the a kind of equivalent to NATO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is Russia, basically Russia, ninety percent, and then Armenia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan. Um, so yeah, this this group that went into Kazakhstan a few months ago, you may remember, or, albeit it might have been ninety nine percent Russian troops. Um, so I think there's a role for the CSTO in the Donbass. This, is, this might be where we're going. Some kind of, quote unquote, peacekeeping force that's not Russian. It might be Russian in our median uniforms, but, you know, not Russian, CSTO. And I think all these things, these, and I stick with the line gaff. I think it was a gaff by, by Biden. I think this is just going to be used by Putin to sway countries such as those to say, look, we need to stand up. Um, against the West, against NATO. This is the plan, not just his domestic audience um, for whom Putin will find this incredibly useful. If I could just add to that, I I agree with what what Dom has said. Thanks for getting in touch, Justin. Always nice to to, to have uh, somebody uh, to to um, to debate with, other than uh, the, the, the David and Dom. Um, but yes, so I, I'd, I'd say three things um, in response. The first is is we talked about before about the Russian mentality, and part of that is fearing. Uh, re- attack first of all which i know may seem alien to many of us but um fear of of a hostile invasion which of course the russian uh, state has faced numerous times in the 20th century fear of um of of western influence seeking to destabilize and ultimately uh, undermine the russian state so any talk at all about regime change plays into this cultural deeply rooted psychological fear of of Western meddling in Russian affairs. And so that's why I think it's not helpful. I think that's the first reason. The second reason I think um, that it's an issue is it appears clearly very weak when 
you are trying to put forward a united front internationally about reacting to Putin. And then your own White House has to deny what the remarks that you've just said. And then you yourself rowing back, essentially, um, in, in the subsequent hours. It's, it's not a good look when you're trying to be a, a strong figurehead. And lastly, I, I think it just underlines this point again that we've made several times on this podcast in the last few weeks, that it makes it very easy for Putin and for the West's foes when you clearly articulate your thoughts so publicly. Um, In the old days, these kind of things would have only been said in private and it meant that when there were international uh, crises of of, of various different types, then you would always... the, The... people would always be second guessing what you were going to do. And I think that one, unfortunately, of of President Biden's traits is that he he acts more like a pundit than a president. He's a commentator in chief rather than a commander in chief. And it's not the way that you effectively emanate strength and strategy. And so I think that those are three sort of thoughts as to why I think this matters and why I would agree with Dom that this is a that this is a gaffe. But I appreciate the question, Justin, and I hope you you won't uh, (laughs) um, uh, disagree with me too strongly. Well, thank you, Francis. And thank you, Dom. And thank you, Justin, for the question. Um, Do let us know what what you thought of that. Um, Can we talk um, about these negotiations? So Russian and Ukrainian negotiators have begun face to face talks in, in, in Istanbul. Uh, they're hosted by the Turkish president, Erdogan, who's urged them both to put an end to this tragedy. Could we sketch out the negotiating positions of, of each side? And, and I'd be interested as well to hear, hear a little bit from you about w- what do we think is realistic? Um, uh, w- where might they start in their, in their negotiations? Where, where might they drop back to? Well, uh, the first thing I'll say is that you've got to understand the negotiations have already started. I mean, they start long before anyone gets in the room and, uh, and studiously avoids shaking hands because of COVID or or. Novichok or God knows what else is is floating about. But so the negotiations have already started. Everything we see through the press and through these public statements, that's all part of the game. Um, But formally, uh, Russia wants Ukraine to um, uh, drop any hope of joining NATO. Um, uh, They've talked about denazification. They want to uh, come to a conclusion in in the Donbass. And uh, they want to ensure, they want uh, Ukraine to... um, to formally renounce any claim over over Crimea. Um, now, Ukraine wants security guarantees, part of any any deal, quite quite what that would look like, and who the guarantors would be, um, and and has pushed back on this idea of reducing its military power, um, uh, but has signalled that it's that it's willing to to at least shelve for a short time or some some amount of time this idea of joining NATO. Um, so there are some areas where they can touch the biggie is going to be um territory i think um once you start fighting it's incredibly hard for the in this case ukraine uh to relinquish any amount of of gains any amount of land that you've lost to the other side i mean it would be seen it would be a victory for putin he's a he's a man who doesn't doesn't actually care about the the numbers, the, the loss of life. So he would just see a win. He wouldn't see a, 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 a pyrrhic victory. He would just take the victory. So um, I think it is going to be incredibly difficult, that that talk. Issues about the Donbass will be, will be very interesting because before the war, the separatist areas in the east of the, east of the country um, was... Uh, the, the the relationship between Kiev and and those areas was was strange to the point of breaking point. If indeed they 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 still survived, so I mean there was there was there was room there to do something to have some uh, quasi political uh, fudge about uh, the autonomy or how how much autonomy those those areas would would have and quite where they sit in the international um, international group of nations, but. The, the territory to the south, that land corridor that, that looks almost to be complete. If if Mariupol um, finally falls, then that land corridor from Russia, mainland Russia, through to Crimea, up to the Dnieper River, will be complete. I think that will be hotly contested because Russia will not want to give that up. And um, whatever accommodation, if any, Ukraine's prepared to make over the Donbass, they will not want 
any inch of that ground along the south coast um, to be seeded. So I think there there are some absolutely fundamental sticking points here, even if there has been signalling over some of the other uh, bigger issues. Um, If I could just add to that, I think it's important to stress as well that it's not just Russia and Ukraine that are at this negotiation table. They may not be there in in, in person, but in spirit, of course, many of the Western powers will be talking to both sides and, and making their own positions very clear. And as I say, we have um, r- reported and and uh, and had um, uh, heard in 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 the last sort of twenty four hours or so that, as I say, the British position is is saying to Zelensky. And I say this is just rumours, but that the the British position is saying to Zelensky that you know you, you're you shouldn't can be conceding land to Putin, and of course that's part of. I, would assume the, the the justification being that I was saying earlier that, that that Britain doesn't feel that Putin should should get any sort of semblance of victory from this from this conflict, but there's different noises coming out of Berlin and Paris that they are more inclined for there to be some sort of peace negotiation that involves compromises. Why? Well, of course, they are much more reliant, particularly the Germans, on good negotiations and good arrangements with Russia. The Germans mostly being around energy and uh, the French mostly being around uh, other sort of transactional business ties and things like that. So it is not in their interest, whatever they may be saying publicly in condemnation of, of, of Putin's actions, they do not want this war to drag on and on and on and continue to um, sap at their own economies. I mean, it's, 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 it sounds terrible to say when you're faced with this kind of scale of, of atrocity on the European soil, but we are facing in Europe a cost of living crisis in part due to the um, lockdowns and the economic impact of that, but also due to generally poor stagnation and growth in many European countries. And that is also affected now profoundly by the sanctions and by the energy crisis caused by the Ukraine conflict. And so, you know, a lot of these, these, these democratically elected politicians are starting to get rather sweaty under the brow at the thought that, uh, that, that, that very quickly their own populations are going to get upset when they realise that you know, their energy bill is going to be going up by 50% or more um, due to what's going on. So there's a lot of other things, factors in play here, unfortunately, that will um, determine any outcome in these negotiations. But as I say, I would argue that the fundamental point surely has to be that whatever one's uh, domestic issues at home, that the fundamental thing that cannot be allowed to be conceded here is that Putin is absolutely in the wrong and cannot be allowed to, uh, to, to, to walk away from this with any semblance of victory. Thanks both. And these negotiations have started off um, in quite a hair-raising manner, which I think brings us on to the, the, what we'd like to think of as the main topic of this space in, in this particular podcast. Um, the Ukrainian delegation have said that, have given themselves advice that they should not uh, eat or drink anything because of the risk of poisoning. And we had a, an astonishing story report yesterday that Roman Abramovich had been poisoned. Um, Dom and Francis, uh, Dom, I know you had quite a few thoughts on this. Um, what should we make of this? How far can we trust that this is true? Right. <laughs> um, I always wish more people in public discourse would say, I don't know, when asked a question rather than just pick pick a line and, and, and drill it into the ground. I mean, a large part of what I'm about to say, it comes under the, ba- the badge of I don't know. It's just so bizarre. Um it, there are so many speculations and avenues you could go down. But on the face of it, um, the open source reporting um, website Bellingcat produced a report last night saying that on March the 3rd, Roman Abramovich and two Ukrainian negotiators uh, reported having been at, at a, um, a round of negotiations, reported feeling very ill, having very um, uh, painful eyes, having um, red and blotchy skin, and uh, they assessed that they'd been poisoned. Now, they've said, Bellingcat has said that they've, they've had an independent medical expert examine the individuals in person and can confirm these things, so, so not just idle speculation. And Bellingcat have shown themselves over the years to be a very good source of information, of accurate information, very well verified, trustworthy information. So on the face of it, I'm inclined to say that I, I kind of believe Bellingcat. Having said that, it seems such an extraordinary story. And the US administration last night, US officials were saying that um, they believe that the, the three individuals 
could have uh, experienced those symptoms because of, quote, environmental factors gave no further information. But quite what the environmental factors are, I, I don't know. So it, it is it is extraordinary what's happened here. Um, if we if so, it could be a very short podcast. I could stop it here and say, take you pay your money, take your choice. We don't know. But let's work on the work. Take a working assumption that that these negotiations were poisoned in a similar fashion to we saw the use of Novichok in Salisbury in, in 2018 that um, made the likely target. Um, Sergei Skripal and his, his daughter, Julia, very, very ill for a short time, killed a, a woman, Dawn Sturgis. Um, and, of course, you've got Litvinenko uh, about uh, 10 years ago, 2006, I think Litvinenko was killed, uh, Polonium 210 used against him in London. So there is form here. Um, Navalny has been poisoned, with, again, with Novichok. So let's let's take it that, that this is a poisoning. Then have to ask, well, who benefits? Who benefits from it, and 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 where might it have come from? I think most uh, most sophisticated observers would say that if this was the Russian state that did it, that would have to have been done with the acknowledgement, i.e., order of of Vladimir Putin. So the Russian state organs, the the, the British held responsible for um, uh, Litvinenko and um the sergey skripal attacks if it was a russian state organ vladimir putin would have would have would have said yes to that operation there are other people in the russian ecosystem um who a bit like in the cyber domain work with the the tacit support of the state but are not actually part of the state themselves and a lot of groups a lot of individuals who work um for what they see as as their master's voice or in line with what the, what they think Putin would want, but don't actually take direct communication and direct instruction from him. It's possible that that's happened here, that somebody thought they'd be doing Putin a favour by derailing these negotiations um, or by striking out as an oligarch, um, Roman Abramovich, who has a lot of links to Ukraine, a lot of links to the West. Um, and maybe uh, they thought they could either derail the negotiations or send a signal to the other oligarchs who it, it's a long shot but if if the if the, the the oligarchs closest to putin all got their heads together and said we are better off with this guy not in power than we currently are they may may be able to unseat him so this could have been a message to the other oligarchs to say you're not untouchable but i i come back to my original point i'm very happy i'm very to hide behind I just don't know at the moment. I don't think anyone does, or maybe maybe one or two people do who did it. But but there's some speculation there. Very happy to discuss all of that. But um, yeah, not not much for, further than that, I'm afraid. If I could just um, jump in there and say a comment on what Don was saying about the reliability of Bellingcat. Um, it's also now been reported, I think they were working in town together by the Wall Street Journal, obviously a very highly respected newspaper in the United States, um, and then subsequently by us and, and other newspapers around the world. Um, but Bellingcat also were the first um, journalism outfit to identify the two agents that committed the Salisbury poisonings. So in that sense, they have very, very good pedigree in terms of their research on these matters. Furthermore, I would just go go uh, add to what Don said in the sense that, that this is not uh, whether this was the Russian state or not. We don't know. But if it isn't, then that shouldn't mean that we then say, well, it was un- that, 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 you know, that, that it was uh, that the previous incidents of this are somehow unreliable as well. I mean, let's face it from what we already know. And Don's given many examples. The Russian state has been engaging in this kind of activity for years. And I think it's important to stress that there's a profound difference between the normal, in inverted commas, means of espionage, where which all countries undertake in, in terms of gathering intelligence, gathering classified information, forwarding it on to foreign powers, etc. But and and then political murders and poisonings, which we know that the Russian state is is very active in. And one of the big differences between that and, and other hostile powers to do it is that the Russians have no qualms about doing so publicly to um, intimidate and to instill fear in those who may challenge the state at home and abroad. Um, there's a huge difference, I think, between these, as I say, the usual spying activities that are occurring and, and those of the Russian state. And, and I think it's right that we call out um, 
the Russian state that's been guilty of these things. And I think one could argue that we have not been strong enough in previous years. I mean, we knew what had happened with uh, uh, with Alexander Litvinenko. We knew what had happened with uh, uh, um, the Scripkols and the Salisbury poisonings. Yet we didn't... Um, you know, uh, suspend diplomatic relations with Russia. We didn't close the Russian embassy. We've continued until now in this current conflict to to, to uh, uh, house and home Russian oligarchs' money here in London and as of many other countries around the world. And as I say, this has only uh, arguably uh, strengthened the Russian resolve to continue such attacks. So whether this is uh, the reality of, of what has occurred here, um, I think is secondary to this fundamental point that whether this one is real or not, um, there are numerous other examples that one can point to. Um, and the FSB is an enormous organisation as well. It's, it's got 66,000 uniform staff and about 4,000 special special forces. It's an enormous um, security outfit. And so it is no wonder they are partaking in so many operations around the world, such as the ones that I've just described. Thank you very much, Francis. And thank you, Dom. I think, I think your, uh, um, the ability to look at it and say, I don't know, is, is very important. I can ima- I imagine that's extremely useful to our listeners. Um, I'd, I'd like to ask a little bit more, um, since we're talking about espionage, about how it's how how it's worked in this conflict um i mean we, we i mean what's what's your take on on the the strength of the espionage on, on both sides well the first one i'd make is from the, from the west so outside of ukraine but the western intelligence agencies i'm principally talking british and american uh, and they were remarkably close to to the money in their assessment prior to the invasion much more so than um than most of the most other commentators in the in, in government or in um, or in the media, so they got that that bit right. Um, and since we've since the war has has gone on, certainly from the from the British side, we've seen Defence Intelligence, which is part of the Ministry of Defence, have a very a big role to play. Defence Intelligence is about five thousand people. It's a big old chunk of um, of the UK defence uh, infrastructure, um, part of Strategic Command, but it owns, um, so Defence Intelligence owns special, the Special Forces Group. Uh, it owns um, uh, all the stuff up at uh, RF Witten, all the um, all the satellite stuff and, and other, other sort of SIGINT, and uh, so signals intelligence, uh, measurements and signatures intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. So when we, for example, when a, you know, North Korea fires a missile, and we get information through satellites that say, "Oh, yeah, there's a there's a, a missile plume of, uh, of this of this magnitude at this location. Where we assess it to be a missile launch." That comes from def- defense intelligence, so they've got all sorts of stuff to to, to work with, um, and so a lot of the information that's received, of course, intelligence. Let's not forget is information plus assessment. Um, one of my particular, one of the, the small hills I will die on is that there's nothing in the world. Intelligence information does not exist. Intelligence is information plus assessment. So there's the getting it and then there's the analysing it and then it's passed to policymakers, which is why you should always keep politicians well out of the way of the actual raising of, of intelligence because that can properly muddy the waters. But that that is a, that's a podcast series all in its own right. Um, but the point I'm making is, Defence Intelligence now has a lot of the eyes on this area and are able to feed in um, ground truth and sensible assessment of what's likely to happen in the near term, i.e. out to the next sort of 24, 48 hours, and then and then days ahead of that, so out to about a week. Anything more than that, and it's, and it's pretty much guesswork um, at the moment. But uh, the traditional espionage agencies... In this country, so MI6, the overseas uh, overseas agency, and um, in the US structures, the, the CIA, um, kind of taking a bit of a back, a back seat now. That their their time uh, has passed and will come again. But at the moment, it's the um, satellites, it's the airborne platforms, um, it's the ground platforms, which include individuals. Um, it's those sensors drawing in information, passing on to. Um, the, a, a body of people who analyse it, of course, greatly help these days through artificial intelligence to crunch through data, um, analyse it, and then come up with intelligence to pass on to the policymakers upon which to decide. 
Um, it's been very interesting, I think, just to add add into uh, what 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 Don was saying. The, 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 the for all of the successes of Western intelligence, I don't think anyone really believed just how how wrong the Russian intelligence could be. Um, it has been staggering seeing the extent to which from the information that we've had sort of leaking out in the, in, in, in the last few weeks, the, the extent to which uh, Putin seemed absolutely convinced that parts of Ukraine would be treating the, the occupying soldiers as liberators, that uh, this would be a very, very short war indeed, perhaps a matter of days, um, perhaps only a week or two, um, that Kiev would be taken from very quickly, uh, hence why there was such a rush to to try and seize the capital early on. Um, all of these fundamental beliefs have been proven grossly inaccurate. And so um, I think it's just worth um, <laughs> worth underlining that, that, that whilst Western intelligence has been very accurate, the Russian, the, the Russian intelligence has also been highly inaccurate. And of course, that's played a, ver- a very major role. Um, just to one final thought based on something that, that Don was just saying there about um, intelligence and, and politicians not getting too involved with it. It's one of the mantras of intelligence that, that one should ne- never ask for from the intelligence services for um, a justification for something that you already believe. And I think that's exactly what Putin has done. He would have said to his intelligence services, um, I, I believe that Ukraine uh, is, is sympathetic to us. Prove it to me. And 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 so inevitably in that situation, the intelligence he would have received or would have been formulated around that. Um, and we've seen, of course, miscalculations in a similar way in the West, perhaps around um, weapons of mass destruction. Uh, both uh, the American and British um, administrations believed absolutely that, that those weapons were there regardless of the intelligence that came back. Um, and that is a political decision as much as it is an intelligence one. And of course, there are numerous examples of that in, in the First and Second World Wars as well, where intelligence was pointing in one direction, but the political um, uh, desire was for it to go another way. And that the intelligence that came back, or was in, uh, or, or the intelligence that was then later interpreted, was seen in a different light. Um, and so, uh, I think um, uh, that th- this is a classic case and a casebook example of that, and one that will inevitably, um, in, in in the decades um, after this conflict, um, be be studied in detail of, of how it is possible for one's intelligence to be quite as wrong as clearly the Russians was and is. Just to make another point, we um, so we've spoken here before about the Russian military chain and how the the units at the at the tactical end of that uh, very rarely can you use initiative or get themselves out of a sticky situation by thinking on their feet because they're just not culturally trained to do that as a as an army. Everything is referred back up the chain for for decision at the top, and a lot it seems to be very similar in the Russian intelligence chain as well that they. This idea of groupthink and this idea that, uh, as Francis said, when the when the boss says, I, "I pretty much I think they're going to do this," can you find me the evidence for it? Or um, you know, just by implying, I think they're going to do this, they naturally fall into line to go and go and sort of make, either make up stuff or put too heavy an interpretation uh, on it um, to please the boss. And that is where groupthink is most is most dangerous. And 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 intelligence agencies now that they're sort of coming out of the shadows a little bit in the last few years and are openly recruiting in our in our newspapers and um, putting it on YouTube and, and what have you. Um, they are really pushing the, um, the desire, uh, making it very clear that they want to attract people from all walks of life. Now, of course, they always say this, um, and it makes, makes sense to try and get as many people applying as possible. But in this country, and I'd be very interested to hear from our US colleagues again, but in this country, GCHQ, our signals intelligence um, organization are really looking for people f- from a neurodiverse background simply because they want to get as far away from that idea of groupthink as possible so have people who who think differently not only because they've been trained to but actually because of us all being different individuals if you have people who who, who think differently anyway and come come to life and come to problems from a slightly different angle that can only be helpful if they then are also given the, the tools of the trade. But if they if they are coming at it from a person as a person from a from a different angle, that gets you away from this idea, this 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 risk of groupthink, such that you end up invading a wrong country or invading a country for all the wrong reasons. 
Um, I think it's worth as well just just making the point that, of course, uh, this is doubly humiliating for Putin because he is of an intelligence background, formerly the KGB. Um, but many of those who are part of his regime were former colleagues in that uh, that enterprise, and he prides himself. On, uh, on on the work that he has done to modernize and reform um, the 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 modern day equivalent of the organization that he used to work for um, the FSB so um, this is clearly something of course we've not heard this from him himself but you can imagine the kind of conversations that are taking place um, um, in the Kremlin uh, around these 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 failures this will be something that that really um, he will n- not not be best pleased about and and I think that that I would not be surprised if once this is all over we see yet another radical overhaul of the FSB and its and, and those that are, are currently leading it not that we necessarily know their names but I'm sure that we will hear through our sources um, uh, of, of, of things going on there because I think it's inevitable after this embarrassment. Francis you took the question right out of my mouth um, so thanks I'd just like to add one more thing to that and just to just Francis and Dom you'll, you'll see if my theory is is worth anything but as you said, Francis, Putin's career uh, starts in, in, in the KGB and the FSB, and he's relatively close. I forget how close, but he's relatively close to the Oleg Gordievsky case. Um, and now, sort of 30 years later, he, it, he's in the process of being bested once again by Western intelligence services. Um, I wonder how much you think that might weigh on his mind. Well, I can imagine it being something that is uh, on his mind. Um, Oleg Gordievsky, for those listeners who are not familiar, was um, the most significant um, uh, Russian agent to, to defect to the to the West. Um, but prior to him doing so, he was feeding invaluable intelligence to uh, to MI6 um, that was going right to the top, not only of the British government in, in, in the form of then Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, but who that she herself was then feeding that into Ronald Reagan about the state of the Russian mentality. Um, and uh, we've talked before, I remember in one of the very early episodes of, 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 this, uh, of this podcast about... Um, in in the 1980s, at the time that this was going on, um, it was firmly believed in the West, uh, wrongly, that that Russia was was really winding down any prospect of a nuclear uh, escalation with the West. Um, but actually, as Oleg Gordievsky was able to prove definitively, that the, quite the opposite was taking place. That the Russian um, people were were firmly of the sorry the Russian. Um, uh, intelligence services were firmly of the belief that there was uh, that a nuclear strike might well a preeminent nuclear strike on the part of, of of the Western powers may well be be imminent, and they had prepared for uh, what they would do in in response to that. And this clearly um, meant that there had to be an ad- adaptation to cool things down from the Western intelligence services, which was highly significant. And some people argue that we came closer to nuclear war in the nineteen eighties and nineteen eighty three particularly than than the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, another piece of valuable intelligence that Oleg Gordievsky was able to feed through um, was about Gorbachev and the role of other um, people outside of of, of of the current regime in in charge of Russia at the time um, to make clear that actually. Um, that there were people who who were contesting the the old-fashioned Bolshevik ideology, particularly around the economy and armaments and and of of sending in troops. And that information ultimately led to Margaret Thatcher famously saying that that Gorbachev was somebody of which the West could do business with. Um, So a hugely invaluable uh, source of intelligence and and such as his his notoriety and and significance um, that he, to this day, is, is believed to be a target of the Russian intelligence service. Services, um, and he has to live in a in a safe house um, in the United Kingdom. Um, so his case is absolutely um, f- um, fascinating and, and a true hero um, in, in in the battle for for freedom. But it only underlines the 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 significance of 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 of, of intelligence um, and and how it can play a role in ways that that only truly one can understand uh, many decades later. Yeah, and for my money, will will Putin take this personally? Will he feel as if it's his own intelligence failure, given his background in the KGB? No, don't think so. Uh, he's already got his defence in early. We saw that extraordinary National Security Council meeting in Moscow just before, uh, I think a couple of days, two days before the um, start of the war, where um, Putin publicly embarrassed Sergei Narishkin, the head of the SVR. 
um, had him up, had him up behind the podium, and was asking him all sorts of really you know, awkward questions, and and just 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 humiliated him. Um, that might be because uh, Nurishkin was had made some comments about about uh, the Donbass and how uh, there might there might be room for uh, for some sort of maneuver there in terms of negotiating. Um, but Putin was was very quick to just chop the guy off at the knees, um, maybe literally now. But um, yeah, so I think it went in in the the wash up such that they'll be in the Kremlin. Um, th- this intelligence failure will be placed firmly at the door of the spooks uh, and Nariskin in in particular. I would imagine, uh, and it would be absolutely nothing to do with with Putin in his reading of it. Well, thank you, Dom and Francis, for that quite fascinating discussion. Um, Dom, just a very very quick question for me, and I know I know I know you can't speak too much on this, but as as a former soldier, how how do you actually work with intelligence? How does it how does it sort of come to you? How how do you react to it? So intelligence from the intelligence agencies, it um, it annoyingly doesn't come in in sort of buff brown envelopes uh, slipped under your door at midnight. Um, it it comes in at um, much higher up the military chain though there's where the, where the civil and military um organs meet and it will be fed in fed in that way uh and so i mean we do the military do work alongside and sometimes with intelligence agencies there are um there are liaison officers within within the british uh, intelligence infrastructure from you know, ser- serving military and vice versa and so there's a very a very clear link there um but it is a it's a constant sort of conversation really rather than rather than just it, it suddenly appears and um the whole of the military want to go left flanking and then the fellow at the back of the room wearing the max says no i'd go right flanking if I be. it doesn't quite work like that it's much more joined up at a much earlier stage um and uh it, it normally it's kept well out well out of sight of um of the sort of divisions and brigades and what have you it happens at a much a much higher level than that but there's um uh, the organisations are very, very firmly knitted together, albeit in small numbers. But there are established practices. It's all cleared um, legally and constitutionally in the UK system. And uh, when military action that that may be um, using or reliant upon, or in some way involving intelligence from the civil agencies, is involved, then there's a whole uh, a whole host of established procedure and policy so that it is legally compliant and um uh, and you're not going to end up for example with military people going into harm's way and and potentially taking life based on the say so of of a of a civilian outside of um outside of a very strict um, and tried and tested legal construct if i could just add to that um i i remember uh, going to a talk and speaking to Sir Richard Dearlove, the former head of MI6 afterwards, and um, he made the point that Dom has just made very, very strongly, which is, I think, going against the stereotypes of the intelligence services that we think that they operate in the shadows and in the low legal grey zone. But the reality is very, very different, that almost everything that is done is, is done through very, very strict uh, legal procedures in the West. And that is something, of course, that is not the case um, it, it, with uh, with the Russian FSB um, and their um, other intelligence agencies. Uh, and, and I think that that's something that we, of which we can be very proud in contrast to, to the actions of the Russian state. Thank you, Francis, and thank you, Dom. Um, I think we're coming to the end end of this. Um, very quickly, what are your what should we be looking for in, in the days ahead, especially um, thinking about the negotiations? Well, I think it's just been breaking in the last half hour that that, that Russia has has rode back, um, or a further rode back on these um, on the earlier position of the war, um, saying it's going to make a you know, quote unquote radical reduction uh, in attacks on Kiev. Um, it says it's going to be doing this. Um, in conjunction with the meaningful talks in 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 Turkey, and also as a way of redeploying forces to the east, but yet again, it, it's another it's another step back for Russia, which I think can only be a good thing. Those big, big, big caveats are out there about what happens to the Donbass, what happens to the south of the country, but these are all they are good signs. Um, long way to go, but but good signs. So I'd keep an eye on the uh, not only what's happening in in Turkey, but also these signals coming out of Moscow. And I would just stress that um, the point that we were making earlier on and have made previously that uh, from the Ukrainian perspective, whilst at the moment it would appear that President Zelensky is in a very, very strong position, um, we shouldn't forget that he is still faced with 
a, a possibility of a renewed and fiercer Russian engagement. These negotiations may well be a Russian strategy for the, whilst they rebuild their capabilities, um, buying them time, etc. Um, so he's got that on his mind. Obviously, already the devastation wrought by the Russian onslaught. Um, and and also these issues around, is there, uh, which I, we've again, we've spoken about before, um, you know, he's now got a population that whilst very much unified by him, if he concedes certain things or doesn't concede certain things, there is a probability that you've got a very high, highly armed population that, that, that Ukraine will potentially be destabilized further and could even be threatened by some kind of civil war or or, or activities that that would require um a a, a, a sort of inner inner strife or, or or reaction to that so um it's it whilst president Zelensky is in a very strong position i think we, we should be sensitive to the fact that there are a lot of other things going on um that that may well be shaping what could be quite a surprising compromise arrangement from our perspective in the west so i would just be very sensitive to that to stay on top of all of our ukraine news analysis and dispatches from the ground subscribe to the telegraph you can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you found this show helpful, follow Ukraine, the latest on your podcast app. And if there's something we could do to make it even more useful do let us know. You can email podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Charles Gear, And today on Twitter, Jaden Irving. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.